Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Principles, Real Estate 300. This happens to be show number 18, and today we're going to be talking about something called real estate finance. And uh, a couple things that I want to mention to you as we, uh, before we, or as we get started, if you will, is that as far as Real estate finance is probably, while all of the chapters are really absolutely crucial that are in this textbook, one of the chapters that's very, very important for everyone to understand, not only buyers and sellers, but also real estate professionals, is how the role that finance plays in the real estate business. And the reason why it is so critical and so important is because when you really think about it, when we get ready to buy a home, here in the Sacramento area or actually anywhere within the United States, we're usually talking about something that will run anywhere from maybe $125,000 on up to millions of dollars. And one of the problems that we have with real estate, because of the fact that it's what we call a high-ticket item, it costs a lot of money in order to buy a house, and because people are going to buy them with the intention that they're probably going to be making payments on those houses, even if they stay in the same house and don't refinance it, they're going to be in there for probably anywhere from 15 to 30 years. They're going to be making monthly payments on it. And why finance is so important is because of the fact that the higher the interest rates are, the more, the less people can afford to buy a home. So, for example, the way I usually like to explain this to students in my class is that I say, you know, if I have a class of, say, 40 students, and let's say, for example, everybody in the class at that, uh, could afford to buy a home that might be considered to be, say, a $200,000 house in the Sacramento area, and they could buy that if the interest rates were at 4%, that would be the baseline that we would, we would set. We would say, hey, you know, anybody in the class could afford to buy this house if the interest rates were 4%. If I raise the interest rates up, if I go from 4 to 4.5%, I may very well lose out of those 40 people. I might lose maybe five or six people. What happens is those people can no longer afford to buy that house. Why? Because the monthly payments are higher. Why? Because the interest rates are higher. And what happens is is that maybe they don't make enough money or they sit there and they turn around and they say, you know what, I, I can't afford that higher payment because I, I also have to put food on the table or I have to make a car payment or something. If you raise the interest rates from 45 to 5%, you're probably going to lose uh, some more people. And if you continue to raise those interest rates up, what's going to end up happening is you're going to get to a point in which nobody in that room can afford to buy the house. So consequently, interest rates and the ability for people to finance property is crucial to the entire industry. If people cannot afford to buy homes, that means if you own one, you can't sell it. If you're a builder and you build homes, people can't afford to buy them. So it's really, really important that we're aware of how financing works in real estate. We're aware of which direction interest rates are going. We as real estate professionals want to have some way of kind of gauging what, what's happening in the market, not to mean that we can sit there and look at a crystal ball and say, you know, I think we ought to buy now because the interest rates are going to go up tomorrow, but that we have a general feeling of how the market, you know, what the rates are, what kinds of financing programs are available for our clients to use to buy a home. And believe me, there are, uh, I want to say a zillion, but there are a lot. There are government programs. There are conventional financing programs. There are finance programs in which the owners are going to help carry or finance the uh, property. 
And then even if we get into certain special types of programs, there's finance programs, for example, if a community is trying to get a doctor or a nurse to move to the community to service the community, you may find out that there are special programs just to help them buy homes. Or universities will have programs that will help people buy homes. So there's just lots and lots of different programs. And it's important for somebody that especially is going to be in the real estate business or specifically in the mortgage lending business to have a good feeling of what kind of programs are out there so they can advise their clients well on what is the best program to meet their needs. So like many of the other chapters, what we're going to do is start out by just discussing some of the common terms that we use in real estate finance, mainly for the fact so that when somebody mentions these terms, you'll understand where they come from and what they mean. And it becomes important to understand those terms so we can sort of study this thing called real estate finance. Now, what I'm going to be doing as usual, I'm going to be moving back and forth between, um, you know, here and the camera and showing you some documents that are in the uh, in the chapter. And the first thing that I want to do is on the uh, first page of the chapter, they use the term leverage. And I'm going to hopefully blow this up a little bit uh, so that everybody can see it. But it says, to utilize the principle of leverage, an investor would use the maximum amount of mon uh, borrowed money. Now, let me just explain this term. Because what happens is, is that as you work within the industry, you're going to hear people say things like, hey, he leveraged or she leveraged the purchase of the home and uh, really got a great deal. What leverage really means is that in real estate, I can usually put down a fairly small amount of money. Uh, if I'm going to go with a conventional loan, for example, that might be something like 20% of the purchase price. If I, there are other programs in which I can put even less down. I may pay a higher interest rate, but I may have where I can put 10% down or 5% down. Or in some government types of programs, I may have where, uh, for example, like the Veterans Administration, I may have where I can put hardly nothing down at all and get into a home because that program is designed to help veterans that are returning from a war overseas to get their first home. Or we also have things like FHA programs where I can get in for a very small amount of money down. But the point is, is that the idea of leverage is kind of like if I had this in, as a lever and I want to move something, I can get underneath it and this be, I'm allowed to move something very, very large with a very small effort. That's what leverage, the concept of leverage is. And what that means is that if I put, for example, a small amount of money, maybe say I'm going to buy a house and uh, it's $200,000, and maybe if all I have to put down is 5%, which is going to be roughly in the neighborhood of about, say, uh, I don't know, about $10,000, with that $10,000, it allows me to control a $200,000 asset. So that's the idea of leverage. Leverage allows me to control something that's very large with a small amount of effort on my part. So that's the term that we use. Now, as we go through the chapter, I'm going to be explaining a few more of these terms just so you know what they are because you're going to hear about them here and you're going to hear about them in the financial industry. The next term that you'll usually hear somebody talk about is something called hypothecation. And I'll point that out and then I'm going to read a little bit here what this definition is. And i got to get everything kind of set up on the, uh, of course, you can follow me in the book here, but uh, I'll go through what this is. It says, real estate finance is based on the principle of hypothecation. To hypothecate is to provide title to property as security for a loan without giving up possession. 
although one can hypothecate or pledge stocks as security for a bank loan, most real property buyers hypothecate their property as security for the real estate loan. Uh, what that basically means is this, that when you borrow money to purchase a home or purchase any real estate, or if you're going to refinance the property, the lender is not going to lend you the money unless they have some kind of say-so over what you can do with that property while you owe them the money. So, for example, you when you get ready to buy the property, you will actually say to them, okay, I'm going to move into the property and uh, live here and use it and enjoy it, but I am going to pledge that as security so that in the event that I do not make my monthly payments, you, whoever the lender is, has the right to sell this property to help pay the loan off or to pay the loan off. That's that's pledging or hypothecation. Now, I can hypothecate or pledge a lot of different things. It talked about there in the chapter stocks and bonds. So, for example, I could go to my credit union or to my bank, and I could say to them, excuse me, I have some stock in IBM. I would like to borrow some money. I want to pledge this stock to you so that in the event that I don't make my payments, you can sell my stock and get the proceeds of the or get your money back on the money that you lent me. Uh, and credit unions, for example, it's not uncommon for some people with their first loan, or sometimes parents will do this, what they'll do is the, the children will want to buy, for example, a car, or they'll want to buy something. And what the parents will say, you know what, why don't we get the first loan that you're going to have, I will go to the credit union, and I'm going to put some money in this account, and that's going to be your account. And then what you're going to do is pledge that account, okay, as security for the loan you're going to get. And then what will happen is you'll get your loan, and then you'll make your monthly payments. And in the event that you didn't make your monthly payments, what would happen is the credit union go ahead and take their money and get their money back. And that usually a lot of times parents will do that to help children start to do things like create a, line, uh, create cre a credit score or a good credit score for them, showing that they borrowed some money develop that ability to make the monthly payments back. But we could pledge just about anything. We play, When we buy a car, we pledge the car. We get to use and enjoy the car and drive the car around. If you think about it, if you have a loan from a credit union or a bank to buy the car, that thing we call in California the pink slip, which is the title of the car, is held by the lender. So until you make all of your payments, you don't get the pink slip. But as soon as you do make it, then you get the pink slip, which means that during that period of time, if you don't make your payments, they can send out the repo man and, and repossess your car and go ahead and, and take it back and use the car, sell it to help pay the loan off. So that's the idea of hypothecation, pledging something to the lender that they can take in the event that you do not make your monthly payments or whatever your payments happen to be. Now, when you borrow the money, it stands to reason that one of the things that you have to do when you borrow the money is you have to put something in writing. You have to put something in writing that states that you are borrowing the money, how much you're borrowing, when you're going to make the monthly payment, uh, how long this is going to go on for. And we call this a promissory note. So as it shows you here, it says a promissory note is a basic instrument used to evidence the obligation of the debt. So, in other words, it's, it's, it's a document that shows how much money you are borrowing. Uh, it is an unconditional promise in writing by one person to another to pay on demand or over a fixed, determinable period of time a sum of money. 
So, for example, it can be like I promise to pay back the Bank of America, you know, $300,000 for the purchase of my house at 6% interest for the next 30 years at $1,000 a month. That would be contained in the note. Uh, borrowers hypothecate real property as security for payment of the promissory note. The trust deed or the mortgage is used as the promissory note, as, in the promissory note to hypothecate the property as security for the note. So essentially what we're doing is we're saying when, whenever we go and borrow money, and I don't care what this is on, it could be on a car, it could be on a house or whatever, we're going to sign some kind of a document, some kind of a note. It's going to say what it is, how much we're borrowing, uh, when the monthly payments start, when they end, what happens if we happen to be late on the payments, uh, if, if the lender's allowed to charge us some kind of a fee or a late fee for being, that's going to be there. If, uh, if we pay the loan off early and they're going to charge any kind of prepayment penalty, it'll be there. So all the terms are going to be in the note. When you get all done, uh, you're going to read that note that's normally made out by the lender, and then you're going to go ahead and sign it that you promise that you're going to do that. And what you're going to do is you're going to pledge your house as the collateral for the note. Okay. Now, there are different kinds of notes. And uh, I'm going to, uh, let me see if I have a picture of a note here. I'm going to show you a note that happens to be, well, that's a different type of a note. But anyway, let's just talk about a note. There are different types of notes that you can deal with. The first one is something called a straight note. And a straight note is a promissory note in which the borrower repays the, princi uh, repays the principal in one lump sum at maturity while interest is paid in installments at maturity. Now, let me explain what this is. With a straight note, and sometimes I remember when I was a kid, my father used to have another term for this. We used to call it a standing note, meaning the note stood there and it never went down. And what happened is, is that you pay interest on it every month, but you never pay that extra money that you need to pay in order to get the, the loan balance to go down. So, for example, if my note happens to be, if I go out and I borrow $10,000 from somebody, and let's say I'm paying, and I'm just doing this so that I can do this math easy in my head, but let's say at $10,000, let's say my interest rate was uh, 10%. That means that every single solitary year, I have to pay the person that I'm borrowing the money from $1,000. 10% of, of, of $10,000 is $1,000. So that means at the end of the first year, if, if that note went on for five years and all I was, it was a straight note, that means that the first year I would pay $1,000. I would still owe 10. Second year I'd pay $1,000. I'd still owe 10. And I continue to pay that. But the, uh, uh, the initial balance that I borrowed would still be there. Now, what happens is we in the real estate business sometimes have these kinds of loans, and the reason why we do is because of the fact that it helps people initially get into a home. So we may, for example, have, and there are loan products that are out there like that, where maybe the borrower is going to pay interest only for a period of time and then eventually agree to then make or increase their payments and start making larger payments to pay the loan off. But interest is just interest only. That's all you pay. There's no principal paid back on that kind of a loan. The second type of a loan that you're going to see is something called an installment note with a balloon payment. Now, with that kind of a loan, what that means is, is that that's almost, in my mind, like one step up from an interest-only note. 
The concept here is, is that we're going to sit down with the client, the buyer, or the person that's borrowing the money, and we're going to say, you know what, in order for you to really be able to pay this loan off, uh, you know, in order for you to make, what we're going to do is we're going to have a payment that you're going to be making, but what you're going to be doing is when you make that payment, you're going to make that payment as if you were trying to pay the loan off in 30 years. And the reason why I say that's a step up is normally when you're making payments on a loan and it's stretched out over, say, 30 years or in some cases nowadays 40 years, I think there's even some higher than that, what will end up happening is there's you pay your interest and you pay a very small amount of principal. So you are actually paying enough to eventually pay the loan off, but not really to pay it off very, very quickly. Now, normally what happens is, is that, for example, if we have a 30-year fixed-rate loan, uh, what will happen is, is that you're, you know, you'll pay a little bit of interest. You'll pay interest on the outstanding balance, and every month you're going to pay a little bit extra. It's already calculated into the into the payment. With the idea in mind, if you continue to make those payments throughout the life of the loan, you'll eventually pay it off. Now, when we talk about having an installment note, means that you're going to make those payments. But what happens is the lender says, you know what, we'll make those payments as if they're for 30 years. But what we'll do is after five years, we're going to call the note all due and payable. And the reason why we would structure a note like that, again, is we're trying to help people get into their first home or maybe their second home. These are people that hopefully have good jobs. They have a good credit rating. Maybe they have a little money in the bank. The problem is they don't have a great big down payment or they're really sort of, they're good in all other categories, but they really are kind of stretching it in the last little bit, which is to make those monthly payments. And what we're doing is we're making the payments a little bit lower because we understand that in, let's say, the next three, four, five years, they're going to get some kind of a job promotion and they're going to move up and they're going to be able to make a higher house payment. So it fits a certain category of people, if you will. One of the things, like I was telling my real estate finance class, that you don't want to do, this, these kinds of loans are not for somebody that has a job where they barely make enough money to get by, where they maybe already have credit that's not really that good, uh, where there's really possibly no potential for their income to go up in the future. This is not that kind of a loan. In fact, in some cases, those people that are still struggling with that in the beginning we may, maybe the best advice for them is not to even buy a home. Maybe what they should do is continue to rent for a while until they get their income situation more stable. Maybe if they're married and they're, they're, the husband can work and the wife can work or a second job or something that helps them move ahead. The worst thing that we can do with a client is put them in a home and strap them down with a payment where they can barely be able to afford it. That's not a good idea. Just so you know, that, that this kind of a loan is for people that we see some kind of future that they can grow into these higher payments. Okay, so that's an installment payment where maybe after four or five years there will be a balloon payment that will all be due and payable at that time. Now, what they do is on this next page is they show you, uh, just as a graphic, uh, the different types of notes just so that you know, okay, so what we do here is we talk, we call this a promissory note. We said that we already had a straight note. That meant it was interest only. And when it's interest only like that, it's going to have the payment is all going to be due and payable at a specific date. So that will be in the note. It will say something like all due and payable, uh, maybe, for example, May of uh, 2010, May 15th of 2010. Okay. So, that, But in the meantime, you'll pay only interest. 
Typically, with this kind of a loan, the reason why you get this is that you think that your job's going to be getting better in the future, and your concept is, is that at that point in time, you'll be able to afford to refinance and pay that loan off. In fact, a lot of times when people have loans like this, what they'll do is they'll keep an eye on the interest rates, and if the interest rates go down into what they consider to be an affordable area, they'll probably, hopefully, be able to refinance and pay this off and get it into a more stable or maybe a long-term type of a situation, maybe a 15-year or 30-year loan. The second area is something with an installment, with a, a note balloon. So you see that this is sort of in the middle. Okay, this is one extreme. That's the other extreme. This is sort of in the middle. This, again, is an installment where you're paying interest only, and you pay it for a period of time, but there's going to come the day that you're going to actually have to pay that off. So this might be where you're paying, making payments as if it's a 30-year loan, but it's all due and payable in five years. The last type of a loan is something called fully amortized. Typically, we see these loans usually in the uh, fixed rate 30-year loans, the more common ones. The interest rate, hopefully, at this point is fixed. We know what the payments are going to be. Every month, we make pay, uh, our payment includes both principal and interest to pay the loan off. So the concept behind it is that if we made those payments for 30 years, our house would be free and clear. And the reason why we have those kinds of loans, they really started to become popular after what we would consider to be the Great Depression, which was in 1929, where a lot of people lost houses and farms and businesses because they had loans that uh, were, as we said, these short-term interest-only loans where the lender could turn around and change the interest rates and make them higher. And what happened is people were losing all this property. And so back during the Roosevelt administration, one of the things that they did is they created what we call the Federal Housing Administration. This was in, I believe, 1934, the FHA. And part of what the FHA did was the idea of creating or, or pushing ahead this concept of a, uh, if you will, of a fully amortized loan so that you would be paying both principal and interest. So anyway, that is at the other extreme. And finally, down here, they just explain what a fully amortized level payment is, and it's the most common one that we deal with. Okay. Now, the next thing that they show here is uh, an example of an installment note with a balloon payment. And I'll try to blow this up a little bit. I don't know whether you can see this or not. Uh, but this should just give you an idea that this is a very, very simple note. It's where you're going to put the amount of money in here. In fact, I can't. I'll try to blow this note up now that you see it, and I'll explain what goes in each one of these particular squares. So I'm going to start right up in this area right here, and I'm going to go ahead and blow this up so we can see it a little bit better. Okay. This is where you're going to put in the dollar amount. So whatever you're borrowing, you're going to put that in there. This is going to be where it is actually, it's in California, and then your date. This over here to the right is where you say, in installments, as hereby stated, for the value I promise to pay, okay, whatever that happens to be. And then you tell where you're going to pay it at, what the sum is, what the interest is going to be, what the interest rate is going to be, okay, so you put all that in there. Then the next thing that you're going to get over here to the left is you're going to say when it's going to be due or more, what the date is going to be that you're going to pay it. Okay. So that's what's put into the note. 
Okay? And then you're going to agree to continue to make the payments until the principal and the interest is completely paid off. Okay, so that's what that note is essentially saying. It's putting the terms down. It's a fill-in-the-blank type of a note. Okay, a very simple note. It doesn't contain a lot of info, you know, a lot of stuff, and it's very simple. So now that we understand that we have a note, a couple of the terms that we want to get out of the way because we use these all the time is a term called. And again, I'm just throwing these terms so that you 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 know what they are. Uh, another term that they throw in here is something called negotiable instruments. And remember when they say instruments, we are not talking about, you know, like a scalpel or a saw that we use to do surgery with. An instrument for real estate purposes is considered to be a legal document that you're signing, that you're promising some kind of money that you're going to be paying. That's an instrument. So it's a piece of paper is what you're really signing. But anyway... What they want to do is they start distinguishing with what we mean by negotiable instruments or meaning the fact that what we're talking about is that we can take it down and give it to somebody and get our money. Okay, So this is a term that they use. They say a negotiable, negotiable instrument is any financial document, promissory note, check, or other, that can be passed easily from one person to the other if it meets certain legal requirements. Any promissory note may be negotiable, a negotiable instrument that is freely transferable. A negotiable instrument must be an unconditional promise to pay. You have to have it in writing. So in other words, when we say unconditional promise, that word unconditional or conditional means you just, there's no conditions tied to it. You just say, you know what, I promise to pay you back uh, whatever the amount of money happens to be. There's no conditions, period, okay? The second thing is, is that it has to be in writing. The third thing is, is it's made by one person to another. The fourth, it's signed by the maker. And by the way, when you sign that note, your title, you're called the maker, okay, because you make the note. Fifth, it's payable on demand at a set date. So in other words, when we have the note, we say, hey, you're going to pay us, and you give the date, all right, and for a set amount of money. So in other words, you know, for, you know, $10, $20, 100, 1000, 10,000, a million, whatever it happens to be. Okay? So that's what that negotiable instrument happens to be. Okay? So, now that we've done that, a uh, couple other things that they have in here that you just need to know about is they call a holder in due course. A holder in due course all this really means is, um, let me see, a holder in due course is one who has taken a negotiable instrument from another in good faith without knowledge of a defect. All that means is the fact that you've given me something, a note. You know, you've given it to me. For, for example, I can trade notes. I could, for example, sell my house this year, decide that I'm going to carry my equity in the form of a note, and a deed of trust where the buyer is going to make payments to me. You know, every month they're going to make payments. And I can decide after a year or two that, you know what, I want to buy, I don't know, another motorcycle. <laughs> or I want to buy a motorhome. Or I want to buy a car. Or I want to buy something else. And I say, you know what, if I had that money that was in that note, that would be really great. So I could turn around and sell that note to somebody else. Their expectation is when I sell the note to them that they're going to get what that note says, all the monthly payments, all, you know, they're going to get their payments at a certain time, it's going to have a certain value, so on and so forth. They'll know what the due date is and everything. 
But if there is a problem with the note, in other words, something like a forgery, something else, that's what we're talking about. In other words, when they're taking it in due course, not knowing that there's a defect with that document, that's what we're talking about. Now, a couple things that you're going to see in, in that are going to be terms that we're going to be utilizing in real estate finance. This also goes down into the actual note and in many times under the security instrument. By the way, normally when we have a note, the note is something that is between myself and the lender. So if I borrow the money, this is a document that I see and my lender sees. I don't publish it. It's not known to everybody. I don't record it at the county recorder's office. It's just between the two of us. In order to secure that note, I normally have one of two other documents that we'll be talking about in the future. One is called the mortgage. Okay. In fact, we use that term all the time in California, although we don't use mortgages. We talk about going to the mortgage company. We talk about becoming a mortgage banker. We talk about burning the mortgage when we pay it off. It's always mortgage, 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 but we don't use mortgages. Mortgages are a two-party instrument. They are between a lender and a borrower. If for some reason you need to foreclose on a mortgage, you have to go to court. It's called a judicial foreclosure in which you ask the judge, excuse me, judge, when you finish your coffee over there and your donuts, do me a favor. I want you to rule on the fact that Pat hasn't been making his monthly payments and I would like to turn around and take possession of the house and sell it in order to pay the loan that he owes me. That's a mortgage. In California, which we'll talk about more in, 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 uh, later on, is we use something called the deed of trust. In that case, we don't have to go to the judge. We don't have to worry that he's in the middle of eating his donuts and drinking coffee. What we do is we have somebody that's the borrower, we have somebody that lends, and then we have this third party that holds on to the title while we're making the payments, and that's called the trustee. In the event, that in California at least, that the borrower doesn't make payments, the lender calls the trustee and says, start the foreclosure. We don't go to court. We don't do anything. Just follow the law and go through the foreclosure process. But we'll talk about that more in the future. But anyway, when somebody lends somebody money, one of the things that the lender can do is put, uh, put statements or put clauses in the document. Now, we, in order for this to make sense to you, you have to think about the lending process. When I get ready to borrow money from the lender, the lender asks me, for example, if I go down to the bank today, if I stopped on the way home at Wells Fargo and I said to them, excuse me, I'd like to borrow some money against my house, they'd say, okay, thank you very much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. The first thing they'd do is they'd ask me to fill out a loan application. I would be putting down where I worked, how long I worked there, how much money I made. I'd be putting that, my wife and myself, I'd be putting or disclosing that. Everything that I owned would be on that application. In addition to that, the lender would also ask me for some documents to support the statements that I've been saying. So they'd say, okay, well, you said you made this much. Can you give me your pay stubs? I want to see your income tax statements. Okay, I want to see a statement of all those assets you own. You said that you have stocks and bonds and mutual funds and retirement. I want all that. I want to look at that. I want to make sure when I lend you the money that the statements that you're saying are true. And the way you're going to, you're going to show that is by supporting that with some documentation. Okay, So they're getting an opportunity to look at me. In addition to that, the lender is also going to be turning around and doing things like checking my credit. 
They're going to be saying, well, does Pat make his payments on time? Is he late? Has he ever filed any, has any judgments or liens been filed against him? So the point is the lender, when they make me the loan, are going to have the opportunity to fully evaluate me before ever lending me the money. The second thing is they're also going to want to look at the property. They're going to hire somebody called an appraiser. I'm going to pay for it. They're going to go out and they're going to say, you know, Pat said this house is worth $300,000. And what I want to do is I want to find out if that's true. So they're going to hire an independent appraiser to go out who's got a lot of knowledge. They're going to look at a lot of properties. They're going to look at my property. And they're going to come back and render an opinion and say yes or no. But they're going to put down what they think the property will sell for. Okay? The point I want to make is that when a lender makes this loan, they are going to a lot of effort to make sure that they are making a sound financial decision. They're looking at me, and they're looking at the property. So consequently, if I'm going to sign some documents and borrow some money, they're going to have some clauses in that document to make sure that I'm going to continue to be the person that lives in that house and makes those payments. That's why I want to kind of stress this. So some of these statements, some of these clauses they have in here, we've given them some names. And the first one that we're going to talk about is something called an acceleration clause. Think about an acceleration clause when you drive your car home tonight and you step on the gas pedal. It's called an accelerator. When you push down on it, it makes it go faster. If you're riding your motorcycle home tonight and you twist the throttle grip, it's going to go faster. It's called an accelerator. Okay, so acceleration means that we're going to accelerate or make something go faster. In this case, it means make the loan pay off faster. So I'm going to read what this says. It says, in an acceleration clause, upon the occurrence of a specific event, the lender has the right to demand immediate payment of the entire note upon some kind of an event that happens. An acceleration clause is used to demand immediate payment in full because of a default in the loan payments, because the property owner has not paid the property taxes, the property owner doesn't have fire insurance on the property, or upon transfer of the property. So those are conditions in which the lender can say, you know what, part of the idea of me lending you the money to buy that house is you're going to pay the property taxes. If you don't pay them, I'm going to foreclose and get the property back. You also agreed that you were going to go ahead and have fire insurance. So in case the house burned down, I would turn around and be able to get my money back. Okay, if you don't do that, I'm going to foreclose. I'll, what I'll do is I'll put insurance on the house, and I'm going to foreclose on you. Um, they may also say, for example, transfer the property, and that's a big issue. Because remember, when you borrowed the money, the lender took all that time to look at you to see if you financially qualified for the property. They looked at your income. They looked at your credit rating. They looked at all that stuff. They got all your financial statements. They justified through income taxes and pay stubs that you really made what you said you made. Now, all of a sudden, if you sell that property, you're turning around and you have another individual moving in there. What the lender wants to do is to say, whoa, wait a minute. You can't do that. The original deal was between you and me. If you sell that property to somebody else, I, I, I want to have a choice in what you're going to do. Uh, I, you know, the lender may turn around and say, you know what, I may allow them to take that loan over, but I want them to come in. I want to talk to them. I want to get their financial statements. I want to look at their credit. Okay? And I want to charge a fee because I'm going to have to hire some people to do all this work. So the fact is, is that a lender can call the loan due and payable if they find out that you sold the property to somebody else 
but didn't let them know. That's something that will accelerate the payment of the loan. Okay? Very important. The main purpose of an acceleration clause is to make the entire balance of the loan due and payable at once. A late payment is a payment that uh, a late payment is a payment that is, unless otherwise stated, more than 10 days past due. And all we're really saying here is that it's a it's a clause that's in the contract that the lender, at their option, has the right to turn around and foreclose. The second clause that you're going to see in a lot of these contracts is something called an alienation clause. And an alienation clause is sort of like an acceleration clause. Okay, and I'll read what it is and I'll talk. It's called an alienation due on sale. An alienation clause is a form of acceleration clause stating that the entire amount or loan becomes due and payable when the property is sold, assigned, transferred, or otherwise alienated. Think of an alien as like somebody came in from Mars. In other words, you're going to bring somebody else in. You're going to sell the property to somebody else who is alien to you and to the lender. Okay? The lender has not had a chance to look at that. If they do that, the lender can call the loan due and payable now. Okay? And they have that right because of this alienation clause. Very, very important that you know that. In fact, it's very important that you know that, that your client knows that, uh, that you understand what the conditions are, what the lender requirements are. You need to know all of that. Okay? The third clause that you're going to see in here is something called an assumption. And an assumption means that I'm going to allow somebody else to take over this loan. Okay? Somebody else. Okay. So it says, if a buyer assumes a loan, on a property that is already encumbered, meaning that it has a loan on it, okay? He or she accepts the responsibility with the lender's consent for full payment of the loan. The name on the loan is changed to the buyer. With a true assumption, the seller has secondary responsibility. I'm sorry, with a true assumption, the seller has secondary responsibility. I'll talk about that in a minute. To end his or her liability and put the loan in the name of the buyer, the seller has to file a substitution liability. Let me explain what this is. When I, remember, when I got that original loan, I was the one that borrowed the money. I'm responsible for the loan. If somebody comes in and I sell that house to somebody else, unless I ask for it, I'm still primarily responsible on that loan. Still, to this day. Okay? even if I have asked the bank to look at the new buyer. Even if I go to the bank and say, excuse me, I have Mr. Jones here. I'm going to send him in. They come in. They sit down with the banker. They get all the stuff just like they did with me. They get all the loan documents. They get all the everything. And they say, okay, we have understood that Mr. Jones can go ahead and take over your loan. That's okay. But unless the lender turns around and actually executes a document called the substitution of liability, I am still liable on the loan. In fact, I could be liable and also the new guy can be liable. So the point is, is that if you ever have a situation where somebody's going to assume an existing loan, you want to make sure at least you ask the question and get in writing, is the old seller, the person that was on it, are they still liable for that? Has that ever happened to anybody in the past? Yes. Has it ever happened to anybody that's standing here talking to you now? Yes. I had a situation many, many years ago in which I had a house, had a VA loan on it, tight financing times, 
Broker said to me, go ahead, you know, hey, people can take over these loans. I didn't know anything at the time. I was kind of young, uh, in my early 20s, needed to move to another house, had a new buyer come in. They went ahead. They took over the loan payments probably about, I don't know whether it was a year. It might have been six months or a year later. I get a phone call. Uh, I'm at home that night. Just got home from work. The phone rings. Go in, pick it up, and they say, hi, are you Pat? And I said, yes. And they said, I'd like to speak to you about your house that uh, that's in foreclosure. And I said, what house is in foreclosure? I've been making my monthly payments. And they said, well, don't you own this house? And they named the house I used to have. And I said, no, I sold that house. Somebody else took the payments over. And they said, well, your name's still showing up. And I said, it is? And they said, yeah. And what it amounted to is because I had never gotten a substitution of liability, my name was still showing up as being the defaulting person on the loan. Now, this is back in 1972, so it's a few years ago. And things have changed and laws have changed and so on and so forth. But the fact is, is you need to ask that question. You do not want to, because typically the reason why people are assuming loans is because it's difficult for them to qualify for a new loan, either because of higher interest payments or because of lack of enough funds to qualify. Something's going on. So you need to ask that question. And there's an assumption. Assumption, you can have an assumption where somebody comes in and takes over the loan, but you're still liable, or you get a full assumption where you ask them to take you off and have the other person put on. Very, very important. You don't want to be liable for that anymore. So anyway, that talks about an assumption. Another kind of an agreement that you can have is what we call a subordination agreement. A subordination, and I hate that word because it's usually associated with people, and I don't care for it because people will talk about, oh, I'm the boss of my subordinates, meaning somebody junior to you. But a subordination clause is where you, where the lender agrees ahead of time that if the buyer gets new financing, that they will agree to make their loan junior to the new loan. Let me explain how this works in an example. It's not uncommon if people own uh, raw land, not raw land, but lots. Like, for example, if you drive around a community and you see where there's houses, and you'll see that there's property there and there's no houses built on it, or you know maybe a house, no house, house, no house. And so somebody owns that land. And they maybe one day will go out there and put a little sign up and say, land for sale. And you're driving around the neighborhood and you go, God, you know, that is exactly the kind of lot that I want to buy. I like that lot. So anyway, you go ahead, you write the phone number down, you contact the uh, owner of the property by the phone number. And you say, you know what, I, hi, uh, you know, who is this? And they say, oh, this is Jim Smith. Oh, hi, Jim. My name is Pat Hogarty. I was driving down... Uh, you know, Wentworth Road, and I noticed there was a lot on the right-hand side had your name and phone number. If I got the right property, says, yeah, no problem. Say, yeah, I'd like to buy the lot. So you enter into an agreement, and you decide to buy the lot. Now, the problem when you get ready to buy the lot is that maybe that owner owns that lot free and clear. Maybe they own it free and clear. The problem that you're going to run into is that if you go down to the bank and you want to borrow some money to buy that lot, you're going to find it difficult. Usually lenders, because just land, just the lot, doesn't actually generate any income. You know, maybe we can get somebody to, you know, pay us, you know, 50 bucks a month to put their motorhome on there, but it doesn't generate any income. So they're a high risk or a higher risk type of a loan. So what typically, I'm not saying all the time, but in many cases what will happen is if somebody wants to sell that lot, it's not uncommon for them to have to agree to carry the loan. 
So, for example, maybe that lot is in a nice area and they want to sell it and they want to sell it for $100,000 and you say, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll go ahead and buy the lot from you. I'll agree to give you $5,000 down. I'll make monthly payments and my monthly payments will be, you know, you know, uh, you know, whatever the amortization is, it comes out to be somewhere around, say, $500 a month. So I agree to do that. And they say, okay, no problem. Now, what happens is if then I go down to the lender, you know, maybe when I buy that lot, my intention is to actually build a house on it. Now, if I did not do the subordination agreement ahead of time, here's what would happen. I'd go down to the lender. I'd say, hi, I want to build a house. They'd say, where's your house plans? They'd show them the house plans. They'd say, hey, that's a really nice-looking house. And you'd say to them, hey, I want to borrow some money. And they'd say, hey, that's great. Glad you stopped by here. Okay. And they would order the title report, and they'd take a look at it, and they'd go, well, you already have a loan against the property. And you'd say, yeah, I bought this, I bought this land. You know, that, you know, I couldn't get a loan to buy it. And so the guy that owned it went ahead and said he'd carry the loan. Okay. Well, the, the lender is going to turn around and say, well, you know what? We will lend you the money to buy, to build your house, but you have to get that guy. You either have to pay that guy off so we can record our loan and be in first position, or you have to turn around and have that person agree to become a junior loan to our loan. So that in the event of foreclosure, you know, if your house, if you don't make payments on that construction loan, in the event of that, we can, when we foreclose, we're going to get paid first and then he'll get paid. And so it's not uncommon to have people, when they sell land, to have a subordination agreement where they will agree to some time in the future to make their loan junior for a construction loan for a specific period of time. The idea is, is that you buy the land, you have this loan payment, you go get the funds to build the house, you start the construction on the house. After the house is all built and the, and the building department has signed everything off and said, hey, it's okay for you to move in, what will happen is you'll get a brand new loan that will pay off the construction loan and pay off the lot loan. And that will be recorded in first position. And that's the loan you're going to make payments on while you live there. Okay, hopefully that all makes sense. Um, another term that you're going to hear is something called prepayment penalties. And the prepayment penalties are where if you pay the loan off before the due date, What's going to happen is the, the lender is going to charge you a fee to pay it off early. So let me say what this is, and then I'll talk about it. This is a prepayment penalty is a charge to the borrower for paying off all or part of the loan balance before the due date. And then after that, it says most financial institutions use prepayment penalty clause on fixed rate loans, but they are rarely employed on adjustable rate loans. That just happens to be a... A statement. The reason why they're not on adjustable rate loans is because adjustable rate loans, the interest rates can go up. And it's not uncommon for people to refinance those to get the rates to come down. In other words, if they have find a cheaper rate. A prepayment penalty is only enforceable during the first five years of one to four units. Now, remember, when we talk about these prepayment penalties and we have these qualifiers, we're talking about residential property, and we're talking one to four units. It has nothing to do with commercial property. It has nothing to do with apartment houses or shopping centers. It has to do with protecting consumers. Okay. Uh, the penalty is usually six months of interest on the amount prepaid each year that exceeds 20%. So in, mo in California, you're allowed to pay up to pay off up to 20% of the loan every year without having to make a prepayment penalty. Okay. 
uh, of the original amount. However, penalties do vary among lenders. After negotiating, a, after negotiating, a lender may sometimes waive the prepayment penalty if the borrower obtains a new loan from the institution or if the money market is tight and the lender needs to use the money to lend out at a higher interest rate. Okay, Let me explain where you would use this. A lot of times when you go down to shop in the store, and today we have banks that are co-located with, uh, with grocery stores. So if we go to Raleigh's, we're going to see a Wells Fargo bank. If we go to Safeway, I think it's not uncommon for us to see a Bank of America. So I'm trying to put you in the framework. You could also have where maybe you have a bank and it's in the neighborhood and you're standing in line and you're getting ready to make a deposit. Okay? And all of a sudden, in any one of those locations, you see a sign and it says, hey, equity lines of credit or uh, use the equity in your house to buy a new car, something like that. And down at the bottom, it'll say something like no fees, no prepayment penalties, no loan fees, no appraisal fees, no credit reports. No, you know, they won't charge you anything. And you go, hey, that sounds good. So you go over and you sign up for the loan. And then as you read the fine print, you find out that, oh, by the way, if you pay this loan off before three years or four years, whatever it happens to be, you're going to have to pay a prepayment penalty. And you go, well, why would I do that? The reason why you would do that is because of the fact, remember, the lender has lent you the money and not charged you all the customary and common fees. Their intention is when they lent you that money that you would most likely use that money and be paying them interest back. And because of that, they would recapture those costs that they were paying for you over the life of that loan. Typically, those kinds of loans will usually have some form of prepayment penalty in them. And they're usually something like an equity line of credit. So if you get, you know, either that or a refinance, some kind of a loan like that where they start waiving a lot of fees, you read the fine print, you are going to have those prepayment penalties. Now, why, where does that come into play? It's not uncommon for people to say, start, borrow the money from the house, Maybe they're borrowing it to put a new roof on, paint the house, do some kind of work. And then all of a sudden, after they've owned the house or lived there for a year or so, something happens. Maybe they get a job transfer. Or maybe after they fix the house up, they decide, you know what? I, 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 I thought I could fix it up the way I wanted to, but I decided it's not going to meet my needs and I want to sell it and get another house. Okay, but for whatever reason, they have to move. Without thinking, they put the house on the market. They, they list the house, they get an offer, they say, hey, great, I got my price. And usually they don't even remember this or find out until all of a sudden it comes time that they have to start thinking about paying the loan off. And normally where it happens is, is where the lender, the escrow officer, sends a demand into the lender and says, excuse me, could you send back what it's going to take to pay the loan off? That comes back to the escrow officer and they say, oh, by the way, you're going to have to pay so much worth of payments to pay the loan off because you're paying it off earlier. The point is that normally where you're faced with these prepayment penalties is because you are usually refinancing the loan and paying off the existing loan before that date, or you are selling the house, which now somebody brand new is coming in and buying it with a brand new loan and you're paying it off. The only point here is that you as a real estate person and as a buyer want to be aware of that clause. You know, nothing wrong with it. You just want to be aware of it so that if you decide that you're going to borrow the money to fix the house up and then sell it, that this is an expense you're going to have to contend with. Okay? Very, very important. Okay. 
A um, couple other terms here. Last term, uh, not the last term by any means, something called an impound account. What an impound account is this. If you go back to the fact, if you think about, you know, that most lenders usually want you to put 20% down or more. So, for example, on a $100,000 house, 20% would be $20,000 or more. The whole concept of you putting that amount of money down is, is that you have some money sitting on the table. You have some money at risk. The chances of you not making payments, if you think about it, if I had to take $20,000 out of my bank account and put it on the line, you know, and if something happened, guess what? I would probably go out there and uh, maybe eat a little less or not take vacation. I would make sure I'd make payments because I would not only lose my house, but I'd lose the money I put as a down payment. So what happens is, is that typically... If you are buying a house and putting a large down payment down, like 20% or more, you normally don't have impound accounts. If you're putting down something less than 20%, the lender is going to sit back and say, you know what, he doesn't have enough money. He didn't put enough money as a down payment. Uh, there's a possibility that maybe if I allow him or don't get, if I don't check on it, he may not pay the property taxes on time, so then I'm going to get stuck with it. And, oh, by the way, he has to have insurance on it, and there's a possibility he may not pay the insurance, so I'm going to find out that I have a property that I lent money on that has no insurance, and it just burned down, and I lose my money. So what happens is the lender says, you know what? What I'm going to do is part of this agreement when I make this loan is I'm going to have this person set up a, an account, like a trust account, in which they're going to take some of the proceeds of the loan, and they're going to put it in this account. That's how they're going to start it. They're going to put a year's worth of property taxes in here, and they're going to put a year's worth of fire insurance in. And every month when they make payments, they're going to be paying their principal, their interest, their taxes and insurance, and they're going to put it into this account. And then what will happen is that when the property taxes come due, I'll make the payment, and when the fire insurance comes due, I'll make that payment. And so usually what we find is we usually find impound accounts typically on, P on loans where people are putting less than 20% down. So, for example, if you get a VA loan, you're going to have to have an impound account. FHA loan or anything that's less than 20%. It's to make sure, the, so the lender makes sure that there is money being collected from you to pay the taxes and insurance. If once you can put down more than 20%, what will end up happening is at that point in time, you'll end up where the uh, lender will say it's up to you. If you want us to, we'll go ahead and collect it and make the payments. But if you want to do it, you can do it. We feel confident because we got enough money from you anyway. And the chances of you defaulting or not keeping the payments up are pretty good. Or, you know, are more, less probable than if you didn't put any money up. Okay, so that's an impound account. Um, the other term that they use in here, too, is something called assignment of rents. And I'll just read what this is. It says, an assignment of rents clause allows the lender, upon default of the borrower, to take possession of the property, collect rents, and pay expenses that benefits the lender. The concept behind this is that, you know, if I'm sitting here and I have a, a property that I'm renting out, let's say I have a duplex, and I get monthly payment. Let's say, if, first of all, if I'm not making payments on it, you know, the lender is not getting any money from me at all. But if maybe if I'm renting this thing out, I'm continuing to get money from the tenants. So the, what the landlord is essentially saying is, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're gonna, let's stop. If you're not paying me, I'm not going to allow you to continue to get rent from the tenants and just take off with it. 
what I want to do is realize that you're getting income coming in on that property specifically. I'm going to come in and take that over. I'll collect the rents. I'll use that to pay the fees and the expenses. And, oh, by the way, if anything is left, I'll give it back to you. So it's a way for them to come in and take over the property so that you're not just taking off with the rents. That's the concept behind that. Okay, we're getting close to the end now. I just want to tell you a little bit what we're going to be talking about the next time. We're going to be talking about interest on loans. We're going to talk about how to calculate it. Uh, there's quite a bit in this chapter. We're going to talk about simple interest. We're going to talk about fixed rate interest, and we're going to talk about amortization. In other words, making monthly payments that will hopefully pay that loan off in time. Uh, we'll be going through a couple of examples, and... And we'll also be talking about this particular chart here. This is showing you, this is something that nowadays calculators do for you. But what basically this is doing on this particular chart, which we'll talk about more. In fact, at one time we used to use this book called a Realty Blue Book. And it was just filled with these charts. So whenever, you know, we had a chart like for 7%, 7 percent seven and a quarter, seven and a half, seven and three quarters, eight, eight and a quarter. And what this is, is that it's monthly payments necessary to amortize a loan. This gives you the loan amount that you're borrowing here. This gives you the columns here is whether it's for 20 years, 25, 30 years, or 40 years. And this gives you a factor that you use to multiply to figure out what the monthly payments are going to be. And so what we're going to be doing is going over that and making sure that everybody understands how that works nowadays Typically, when we get ready to make payments, usually nowadays we use calculators to do that. You know, uh, there's a financial calculator that I know the Sacramento Association of Realtors sells that you just put in the amount of money that you want to borrow. You put in the interest rate and hit the button and bang, it gives you the, gives you the payment. And there's many, many things on websites and they have them on a lot of uh, uh, like lenders' websites like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Biotech, uh, Countrywide um, uh, Mortgage or Countrywide Funding, they all have these different calculators that you can put the amount in there and it will calculate the monthly payments. So we'll talk more about that. Uh, we'll also talk about the different ways that you can make monthly payments the next time, which is going to be, uh, we'll talk about some uh, different types of um, loan programs. We're going to be talking about a graduated loan program. We'll talk about a bi-weekly 15-year in reverse mortgage. So we'll be talking about those kinds of loan programs. What we're essentially trying to do at this point in time is just to get you familiar with what these topics are. There's a lot to these chapters. There's a lot. Financing is a very, very important topic. It's something that you're going to find, want, find that when you have a client and you're going to help them buy a house, one of the things that you're going to want to know fairly quickly before you put them in your car and drive them around town at 3 bucks a gallon for gas is what they can afford to buy. So you're going to want to get them with a lender very quickly to find out what they can afford to buy. Also because you don't want to be showing them property that maybe they really like later on to find out they can't financially qualify for it. So we'll be talking more about that. So with that, uh, we'll continue on at that point the next time we meet. For now, have a nice day, and we'll see you back here the next time. Bye-bye.